from Job chapter 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Farewell then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Good morning, my name is Matt Scogan. Our mic's on. There we go. Everybody can hear me, right? My name's Matt Scogan. Um, I'm one of the lay pastors here at LMCC, and I hope everyone has had a great Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, as Ryan said, last week we talked about giving thanks leading up to Thanksgiving, and this week is sort of a twisted follow-up to last week. That was a funny word to highlight. <laughs> this morning is sort of a twisted follow-up to last week. We're going to take a brief one-week look at the book of Job and ask ourselves to consider what would happen if... Everything we have to be thankful for, at least all of the earthly stuff we have to be thankful for, was suddenly wiped out, suddenly taken away. How would we respond? How should we respond? And can we still have a heart of gratitude in circumstances like that? And, you know, unfortunately for a lot of people, these aren't academic questions. For a lot of people, this year Thanksgiving was not necessarily a happy holiday. How am I supposed to be thankful if I just got really bad news? 
How am I supposed to be thankful if the doctor just said it was terminal or if someone I love was just diagnosed with cancer? How am I supposed to be thankful if I just lost my job or if something I was counting on just fell through unexpectedly? Can we really be grateful when the circumstances around us are anything but great? Once again, this year, with the help of the retailers, we've been jolted from this day of giving thanks to the commercial Christmas season. And it cracks me up every year how Americans choose to ignore the irony, if not blatant, hypocrisy in going from a day called Thanksgiving to less than 24 hours a day called Black Friday, which is probably one of the most commercialized, materialistic days that's ever existed in human history. We go from giving thanks to literally trampling over each other to getting a TV that's on sale. At least that's what I was doing Friday morning. It's a nice, it's a really nice TV though. HD. Just kidding, that's not what I was doing Friday morning. I was working out like usual. Just kidding, that's not what I was doing either. Although I love, I love that the fact that I was working out gets a good laugh. Um, Point is, whether we like it or not, we're in the official Christmas season, and this is the season that's supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year, but for a lot of people, it's anything but that. Every year, the National Institute of Health reports significant increases in depression between Thanksgiving and Christmas, and one survey that was done four years ago in 2010 found that 45% of Americans actually dread the holiday season every year. They dread it. For a lot of people, these family-centric holidays are nothing but a painful reminder of what we don't have. Maybe it's a painful reminder of your loneliness, or maybe your family's been ripped apart by divorce or some tragedy or the loss of someone you love, and the holidays are nothing but a painful reminder of the way things used to be. I'll admit that for me, the last couple of years, the holidays have had a little bit of that flavor to them. As a lot of you know, I lost my dad last year about seven weeks before Thanksgiving, and and it hit me hard. It hit me really hard, much harder than I thought it would. And for a long time after that, I felt like I was in a sort of just-keep-breathing mode of life. And to be honest, I was sort of just coming out of that this year, just in time for our family to find out that we have a new battle to face. My dear 61-year-old mother, who's now living on her own for the first time in her life, is now battling metastasized breast cancer. And in fact, we found out eight days ago, a week ago yesterday, that she has new tumors, which her doctor described as an oncology emergency. So for her, after spending the last five or six years of her life standing side by side with my dad as he fought his disease, with him at every doctor's appointment, caring for him at home, she's now on her own, fighting her own disease, and this past Monday, the Monday of Thanksgiving week, she found herself asking neighbors if somebody could give her a ride to her first ever radiation appointment. And it breaks my heart. And for me, and maybe for a lot of you, maybe you're going through something even worse, for me and I think for my family, although we know we have a lot to be thankful for, the word why came out a lot easier than the word thanks this year. And yet... The Bible calls us to be thankful in all circumstances. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. I think we can put that up there. Be, give thanks in all circumstances. Now, note that it says in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. We're obviously not thankful for the cancer or the loss or the suffering, but we are commanded, in fact, to be thankful in all circumstances. And for Christians who believe in the good, loving God of the Bible, being thankful in circumstances that certainly aren't great 
is hard to do. It creates a tough set of questions. And that's why the book of Job is so relevant. This book tackles some of life's most difficult questions. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen to good people? And while the book doesn't give us direct answers to those questions, it does confront them in a more explicit way than any other part of the Bible, perhaps even any other piece of world literature. And it does so in this fascinating way. It's like a split-screen movie. We see what's happening on earth to Job and how he responds. And then, at least in the first couple chapters of the book, we get this fascinating look into heaven. And we see what's going on with God while Job is suffering. So this morning for our message, we're going to have two parts. We're first, first, we're going to look at Job and what's happening to him and how he responds. And we're going to consider what that teaches us about how we can be thankful in all circumstances. And then we're going to take a look at what's going on in heaven. What's God doing while Job is suffering? And we're going to consider what that means about why we can be thankful in all circumstances. But first, let's look at earth. Let's look at the scene reality. Let's look at what's going on with Job. And the first thing that's abundantly clear in this story is that if suffering is intended as a punishment for having done something bad, which is what some people believe, if suffering is intended as a punishment, then Job's not a candidate. He's not. He is a good man, a good father, a pillar of his community, and he's a devout believer. In fact, God himself calls Job blameless and upright. There are only a handful of people in the Bible who get called either blameless or righteous. So this man is basically as close to being perfect as any human can possibly get. And yet, suddenly, inexplicably, with no connection to his character, he faces this terrible tragedy. And in fact, what we actually see God doing is God is using this tragedy to reveal his character. Ernest Hemingway was severely wounded in World War I. Doctors picked 237 pieces of shrapnel out of his body. And it was from this brush with death that Hemingway developed a formula for his novels. The formula was this, put a good man in a situation where he comes face to face with death, and it's then that you'll see his truest and deepest dimensions revealed. Maybe it's in an arena fighting a bull, or out at sea, or in combat. Put a good man in a situation where he's face to face with death, And then you'll find out how good or bad he really is. The trial won't make or break him. The trial will actually reveal him. And Job is a Hemingway character. This trial comes on him suddenly out of nowhere. And one afternoon, Job loses all of his wealth. And this is substantial wealth. This is 0.01% kind of wealth. Ultra high net worth. And it's all wiped out in one afternoon. And then on the same day he finds out that his ten kids have died in a natural disaster. And it's when this calamity hits that we start to see his true character, his true devotion to God revealed. And his story is recorded for us so that when suffering comes in our lives, we can respond in a similar way, which is not just keeping a stiff upper lip, but bowing reverently and thankfully before the sovereign goodness of God, which is what Job does. Mention three specific things Job does in response to suffering before we move on and take a look at what's going on in heaven. And the first thing we see Job doing is he grieves. He grieves. And maybe this is an obvious thing to point out, that of course somebody would grieve when you're going through something terrible. But what Job is doing is that he's showing us that grief and pain are not signs of unbelief. The Bible says he gets up, he rips his robe, and he shaves his head. 
Now, that's not the way you or I would express our grief or mourning in this culture, but what you need to know is that in his culture, these are real, authentic ways of showing both himself and everyone else around him that he's broken, that he's not the man he used to be. And he's having, whether or not you or I can relate to this response isn't the point. The point is he's having a real, authentic, emotional, painful response to what's just happened to him. And... And then he goes on, he's holding on to his belief so tightly that he then goes on to worship God while he's still grieving. And what's so magnificent about his worship is that it's happening while he's still grieving. His worship isn't replacing his grief. He's doing both at the same time. He's in pain and he's still worshiping God. He's holding on to his beliefs so tightly that he can do both. And the reason he can do both is that he believes so fervently that everything he has is a gift from God. That's the second thing we see him doing, is he recognizes that everything he had came from God. The first words out of his mouth when he learns of this tragedy is that he came naked into the world, and he'll leave naked. In other words, he's saying, I didn't have anything when I got here, and I can't take anything with me. So everything I had in between was on loan to me from God. It wasn't mine anyway. And he's holding on, even in his emotional pain, he's holding on to this theology of grace that Ryan talked about last week. And then he goes on, after acknowledging that God had given him these gifts, he goes on to recognize God's sovereignty. And that's the third thing we see him doing. And he says something which is so difficult for us to understand, but I think it speaks to his wisdom he says, the Lord has taken away, and then this, he says, the Lord, sorry, he says, the Lord gave, and then he says, the Lord has taken away. Note that he, he doesn't blame the Sabaeans for murdering his servants and taking off with his oxen and donkeys. He doesn't blame the Chaldean raiders for taking his camels. He doesn't blame lightning for killing his sheep or a tornado for killing his kids. He says, the Lord has taken away. Now, he's obviously not ignorant to secondary causes. He understands crime and criminals and bad weather, but he knows that the God he loves and the God he worships is sovereign, totally sovereign, the most sovereign power in the universe. Nothing can happen apart from God's decree. Now that, for anyone, including Job, anyone who believes in the good, loving God of the Bible, creates an enormously tough set of questions. Harold Kushner is a Jewish rabbi, originally from Brooklyn. He now lives in Massachusetts. And in 1981, four years after the tragic death of his young son, he wrote a book, which became a bestseller, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And in the book, he lays out his intense struggle with a God who could allow such awful things to happen. And he concludes, in essence, that God is good and God is loving, but even God has limitations. In fact, he says in the book, and I'm quoting him, there are some things over which even God himself cannot control. In essence, what he's saying is that God is good and God is loving, but, but he's not God. He's basically saying that when it comes to grief and suffering, God must just wring his hands in frustration along with the rest of us. And the reason he gets to that conclusion, Kushner tells us toward the end of his book, and I think we can put this quote on the screen, he says, I can worship a God who hates suffering but cannot eliminate it more easily than I can worship a God who chooses to make children suffer and die for whatever exalted reason. And, and yeah, I mean, it's hard to, it's impossible to argue with that on an emotional level. It's impossible. But what he's essentially saying on an intellectual level is that he's okay worshiping a God who's actually not God, who can't control everything in the universe. And that's clearly not the God of the Bible, that's clearly not the God of Job. 
The Bible says all power on earth comes from God. That's what Jesus says when Jesus, at the end of his life, is confronted with the raw power of the Roman Empire. And Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate says to him, Don't you know that I hold the power of life and death over you? And Jesus says, You would have no power over me if it were not granted to you from above. All power on earth comes from God. And for you and I, for you and I that means that when we encounter suffering or evil of any kind, the death of an innocent child, the loss of a job, cancer, murder, Auschwitz, world hunger, you name it, when we encounter evil of any kind, we have to believe that all power on earth comes from God. Now maybe, maybe we can take some comfort in knowing that at least God is in control. But of course there's this question of why? Why would a loving God even allow this to happen? And that's the question that haunts Job throughout the rest of this book. And things get worse for him. In fact, in the next chapter, Job does lose his health. And then he loses the support of his wife, who tells him he ought to kill himself. And then in the ensuing chapters, one by one, he loses the support of all of his friends. So he's left with nothing, a terrible disease, and no one to support him. And as he goes through all of this, actually his biggest source of pain and anger and confusion comes not from the things that are happening to him, but from his faith. His faith actually becomes his greatest source of agony, not a source of comfort, because he is so convinced that God is both loving and sovereign, and he can't understand why God would allow this to happen. And throughout the book, as Job's frustration and anger deepen, he demands that God show up and explain himself. And at the end of the book, if you've read this, at the end of the book, God does show up, but he doesn't explain himself. Instead, God says, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words but no knowledge? He's saying, You're questioning my plans with words, but you have no idea what you're talking about. Tim Keller, the pastor uptown, compares this to a seven-year-old who shows up at a rocket launch and starts questioning the plans of the physicist who built the rocket. Seven-year-old might say, you know, I'm looking at this rocket, and it's clearly never going to get off the ground. It's clearly far too heavy to fly. Your plans are not going to work. And the rocket scientist, there's obviously such a, an, an enormous gap in knowledge between the rocket scientist and the seven-year-old that all the rocket scientist can really do is say, look, kid, you have no idea what you're talking about. He can't even really begin to explain how rocket propulsion works. All he can say is, you're going to have to trust me on this. I built the rocket and it can fly. And you and I can look at evil and suffering in the world in the same way. We can either look at it and say, well, there must not be a God, or at least a God who's sovereign enough to stop all this. In which case, everything is a crapshoot anyway. Or we can conclude that there must be a God who's somehow in charge of all of this. And you say, well, I can't see why any of this would fit into a good God's a good God-sovereign plan. But how foolish of us, how foolish of us to presume that just because we can't think of a reason that makes sense to us, that that must mean that there isn't a reason at all. That's as ridiculous as a seven-year-old talking to a rocket scientist. And it's at the end of the book of Job when he himself finally realizes that. In fact, in the very last chapter of Job, Job himself says back to God, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand things too wonderful for me to know. So Job, after going through this intense trial, this intense struggle, comes out with more belief than ever before that God is both good and and sovereign, even though he never gets an explanation. Now, 
What's so interesting to us as readers of the book is we actually do get a glimpse into the explanation. So for the rest of our time, I want to look at what's going on in heaven with God. And what we see in heaven, the first thing we can see that's obvious based on what's going on in heaven is that what's happening on earth to Job is just the arena in which this much larger drama is being played out. The narrative starts with Satan entering heaven, and he says to God that he's been roaming around the earth. And God says, well, have you considered my servant Job? And I love how John Piper, who's a pastor from Minnesota, describes this scene. He says it's sort of like a jewelry thief who enters a jewelry store, and the owner of the store says, what are you doing here? And the thief says, oh, I'm just wandering around your store. And the owner says, well, have you considered my most precious diamond up there at the front? And that's sort of what's going on here with God and Satan. It's, a, it's as if God has a trophy that he's so incredibly proud of, that he delights in so much that he just can't help himself but mention it. And he says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright. He fears God and he turns away from evil. And Satan, who, who's the ultimate cynic, says, no, he's not. He doesn't serve you for nothing. He doesn't love you. He loves the things he's getting from you. It's the way you've blessed him that he loves. It's the prosperity, the wealth, the houses, this beautiful family. That's the stuff he loves, God. And if you let me take away all his stuff, you'll see. He will curse you to your face. And God says, very well. Very well. You can take away his things, but you can't touch his health. And you might read that. You might read this and sort of be horrified at first. What a cruel game they appear to be playing with this poor man Job. But that misses the point. It misses the point of what's really going on here. What's really going on here is that Satan is trying to expose Job as a fraud in order to discredit God. See, as the the narrative opens, it appears as though Satan is putting Job on trial, and in one sense he is, but what's really happening is that Satan is putting God on trial. And the real issue at stake here is whether or not God is worthy to be worshipped even when he doesn't make us feel good. The real issue at stake here is whether or not God is worthy to be worshipped even when we can find very little in our current circumstances to be thankful for. And actually, when you see it that way, you begin to understand why God can never give us an explanation for our suffering. When when God shows up to Job at the end of the book, he never even tells Job about this conversation he's had with Satan. And I've thought so many times, maybe you have too, I've thought so many times that I could so much easier endure my own suffering if God would just show me the good he's going to bring out of this. If God would just say, look, I know what you're going through now is really hard, But five years from now, or ten years from now, or whatever, this good is going to come out of what you and your family are going through now. If God could show up and say that to me, then I could be thankful in all circumstances. Then I could serve God in all circumstances. But what you realize from the book of Job is that if God actually showed up and said that, then ultimately wouldn't we be serving God for the good things he's going to give us later? Wouldn't we ultimately be proving Satan right? God wants us, at least once in a while, to serve him and love him just for who he is and no other reason. Most of the time, he does give us blessings in response, but once in a while, he wants us to trust him just for who he is and believe, even though we can't see it, that there's more going on than we can see or understand. Fortunately, fortunately, the Bible promises that God will cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him. 
Acts and Romans. And from that, and I think from this conversation, I think we can take a little bit of hope that we can hang on to. I want to list three spiritual truths we can learn about suffering from this dialogue between God and Satan, and then we'll conclude. And the first spiritual truth we learn about suffering from this dialogue, which is obvious but it needs to be pointed out, is that it's Satan who's doing the suffering. It's Satan who's doing the evil things, not God. None of this is God's idea. It's all Satan's idea. Satan is the one who goes and does it. God doesn't actively participate. He doesn't generate it. He's not involved in any way. And that's true of all suffering and evil that exists in the world. God doesn't want it. He doesn't like it. He doesn't generate it. He doesn't participate at all. It's all Satan's idea, and Satan is the one doing it. But, and this is important, God allows it. But the second spiritual truth we can learn is that God allows it, but he maintains control the entire time. He maintains control the entire time. See, what's so interesting to me about this dialogue between God and Satan is that it's not a fight. It's not a battle. I think sometimes we think that there's this cosmic, epic battle that must be going on, and sometimes God actually loses a battle, and then something bad happens on earth. And that's not at all what is going on here. God is so much in control that he's actually telling Satan what he can and cannot do. God actually says, you can take his things, but you can't take his health. And in the next chapter of Job, you'll see God saying, you can take his health, but you can't take his life. God is so much in control of the situation that he's allowing evil, but then he's overruling it. And in fact, what you see in the end, What you see in the end is that God is so much in control that he's allowing evil and suffering to occur only to the extent that it will eventually defeat itself. It will eventually defeat itself. And that's the third spiritual truth that we can learn about suffering from this story. That what Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. Remember remember what Satan's trying to accomplish here. Satan is trying to expose Job as a fraud in order to discredit God. But you don't need to know anything else about this book or this man to know that Job, as a figure, is one of the most famous figures in human history. After Satan's trying to expose him as a fraud, here we are, thousands of years later, in New York City, studying his life. How many millions of people have been inspired by Job's example of bravery and courage and godliness in the face of suffering? Satan's trying to expose him as a fraud, and God allows just enough suffering to come into Job's life in order to literally make him a hero of biblical proportions. And in the end, Satan accomplished the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. Satan accomplished the very opposite of what he wanted to accomplish. God gave Satan just enough rope to hang himself. And that's true of all suffering. That's true of all evil that we encounter in our lives or in this world God allows it only to the extent that it will eventually defeat itself. And there's no better example of this than Jesus. Centuries after Job, Satan assaults another innocent sufferer, Jesus, who dies naked, crying out, Why? Why have you abandoned me? Why am I suffering? And unlike Job, Jesus was truly innocent. Job was relatively innocent. Jesus was totally innocent. And also unlike Job... Jesus was truly abandoned by God. Job felt like he was abandoned by God, but as you see at the end of the book, God shows up. Job was never really abandoned by God. Jesus was truly abandoned by God. Jesus cries out to God and never gets a direct response. Jesus is the only person in human history who has ever served God and got nothing back. 
Jesus is the only person in human history to whom God says, if you love me and obey me fully, I will turn my back on you and you will experience absolute separation from the glory and majesty of the Father. Jesus truly served God for nothing. So why did he do it? He did it for us. He did it for us. And that's our proof. That's our proof that God is good. That's our proof that God is loving because God in human form was willing to love us just for who we are. He didn't get anything else out of it. He didn't get anything back from us. He loved us just for who we are. And God wants us to respond to suffering or evil when we encounter it in the same way. To love God just for who he is. To trust in God just for who he is. And that is how and why we can be thankful in all circumstances. Let's pray. God, we know that the Christian story is bad news before it's good news, but the good news trumps everything that's broken and confusing about this world. We know that our hope in you will translate all of life's tragedies into a beautiful tapestry of redemption, pointing to that day when, by your grace, you will make all things new. So, Father, we know that we do have much to be thankful for in all circumstances. First of all, thank you for hating suffering and evil so much that you were willing to get involved with it personally, that you were willing to become an innocent sufferer yourself in order to defeat it once and for all. We know that, we, that when we encounter suffer, suffering, we're never alone, that you have never truly abandoned us. In fact, we know that you have good purposes for the bad things that happen to, our, happen to us. So, God, we ask that you would teach us to trust you. We ask that you would teach us to trust you in the face of our problems and our troubles, knowing that you are good and sovereign, and that we can be thankful in all circumstances. Amen.